We had an amazing Harvest Fest. Thank you, thank you, thank you for everyone that came, that participated. So many happy people, and man, God just blessed us. There were no accidents, there were no incidents. It didn't rain for an hour and after the event, and um, some people have asked me for kind of the specific data. What we know is we had over 2,000 people come, uh, which is just amazing when we think we had like 300 come to the first one we ever did, and um, this was staggering. We, you know, only God knows, only God knows people's hearts, but we put together 250 gospel response packets for the ones that would raise their hands responding to the gospel saying, I'm giving my life to Jesus. We gave them all out. We ran out of all the packets. So um, just an incredible response, such a hunger. We are so blessed to live in such a hungry city in the midst of a hungry community. God is doing an incredible Work. If you're with us for the first time and you came from the Harvest House, we always have people do that, then welcome to the family. We're glad you're here this morning. And um, speaking of family, one of the joys I have as a pastor is facilitating many different weddings. And I want to tell you a story about one that was particularly memorable. It was in the beginning of being a pastor, and it was out of state. And I remember meeting with a couple before it happened, and, you know, I'm trying to get a read of how we're going to do this, where it's going to be. And I said, so how many guests are coming? You know, sometimes they do weddings that are 20 people, and sometimes they're larger with hundreds. And this couple said, um, we're inviting 1,000 people. And I went, ha-ha. You know, I, I was kind of smug about it. No, that, you know, a big wedding's three or 400. I don't think you're inviting 1,000 people. When the invitations had gone out and the RSVPs had come back, 1,200 people were coming to this wedding. And the reason both of these families were real known, it was in Oklahoma City. Remember where this wedding was. That'll be important in a few minutes. The, they both were pretty prominent families, and one of the, the father of the bride was actually running for U.S. Senate at the time. This wedding reception was at the University of Oklahoma drawing room where all 1,200 people would sit down for dinner. It was unbelievable. And it was in this beautiful, grandiose cathedral. And so you can imagine, I wanted to be on my A game for facilitating this wedding. And so as, as you would expect, the bachelor party beforehand, it was all day Friday. It was sweet. So we had this huge barbecue. And then the guys went out and did something I had never done before. And it was called sheet scoot, hmm, skeet shooting. There you go. That'd be dangerous to really mess that one up. Ski shooting golf. Okay, so you combine two sports, ski shooting and golf. I don't know if golf's really a sport, but you combine these two. <laughs> Sorry if you're a golfer out there. Uh, um, yeah, it's not really a sport, but we combine these two. Now, I, I like golf. That's, you know, when, I, when I'm not up for playing a sport, I play golf. So, uh, we, God's just on someone today. The spirit of conviction is falling on a golfer. Uh, I'm just kidding. So you combine these two sports. So you go around with like a foursome. So there were about 20 of us playing just to explain what it was. You go around with a foursome. You take your shotguns. Anytime a guy has a shotgun in his hand, he feels particularly manly. You walk around with your foursome, and they shoot the skeet out different at each spot. So it's 18 holes. 
I don't know what happened. It was like the spirit fell on me. I was on fire that day shooting skeet. I'm not normally that great of a shot, but like I couldn't miss. It was really weird. I'd like look at the gun, like did someone rig this gun? I can't miss. So I destroyed the four guys that were with me. Uh, won the whole deal. And so, you know, I'm kind of walking off going, I am the man. Like, not only am I facilitating the biggest wedding in the history of humankind, but I'm also a great shot at skeet golf. Like, this is my sport. So I get in the car. We're about an hour out of Oklahoma City because we've driven to this big country, you know, beautiful spot for the barbecue and the skeet shooting golf. And so I'm walking back to the car with my, my friend Jonathan Gulley. He was the worship leader at this wedding. And so it was important for us to get back. But we had plenty of time to do the 45-minute to an hour drive back. We get in the car. You know, I'm just going on and on about, you know, shooting and skeet, you know, this is kind of my deal now, and we're driving on, and we get in the car, and we're thinking, well, we have plenty of time to make it back, you know, but we've got to be the first ones there to start the rehearsal. Well, we drive about 45 minutes, and I look up, and I'm thinking, nothing's looking familiar. Like, it doesn't seem like I remember any of this on the outskirts of Oklahoma City, so I'm like, hey, buddy, we better speed up to get there. So Jonathan, you know, starts going a lot faster. About 15 more minutes, we see this sign. Can you put it up for me? (laughs) We not only had gone to the wrong city, we drove to the wrong state. We, we, We were, we were supposed to head due south. We had gone due north. We were now two hours away from the wedding. And at that moment, I learned a very important lesson. When you go in the wrong direction, you end up at the wrong destination. (laughs) When you go the wrong way, you're going to end up in the wrong place. You know, it's important to go the right way. And here's the thing. We had good hearts. Like, we were good guys. We weren't, like, carousing and rebel rousing. We had every intention of going to the right place. We were even trying with our whole hearts. I remember getting on the phone and having to call the father and say, I'm so sorry. We're in Kansas right now. (laughs) We were the butt of all jokes for the rest of the weekend. And this just makes, you know, for a funny story, but I want to tell you that oftentimes people are choosing the wrong direction and going the wrong way. It can actually lead to a fatal recourse in one's life. It doesn't matter how much you believe you're going in the wrong way. What matters is that you end up in the right place. And this is what the Bible says. If you turn with me to John 14 right now, we're in a new series called Reality, with the subtitle being, It Matters What You Believe. It matters what you believe. And Jesus addressed this concept of going the right way in John chapter 14 when he said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. 
Now, let me just paint the context for this in in John chapter 14. Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room. The scenario has escalated. The political temperature is at a boiling point in Jerusalem at this time. Jesus has now made a lot of enemies. The religious leaders are angry because more people are following him. They're jealous because of the affections he's garnered of the crowd. And now they've come up with a plot to kill him. They've come into cahoots with the Roman authorities who have cramped down upon this town. And so the disciples have stowed away in this upper room. And not only are they fearful, they're also starting to grieve because Jesus has continued to talk about his impending death. He has said the Son of Man is actually going to be handed over. He's going to be tortured, and he's going to die. And so the disciples are scared, and the disciples are hurting. And Jesus takes this moment to comfort his friends. And this is what he says, picking up in John 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you that. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will also come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? I'm sure he said it just like that. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. Jesus makes an audacious claim. It had never been made before this time. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. You see, it matters what you believe. I actually hear in this day and age people saying things like this. And perhaps you've heard this. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it with all your heart. Or perhaps you've heard someone say it this way. You, you've perhaps been talking about your faith and they say, well, if that works for you. Think about this thought. I, I, I fly on a lot of planes. This Thursday I'm heading up to Seattle to speak on Thursday night to our church up there. It matters what plane I get on. Amen, someone said. It's not like I can walk into the San Diego International Airport and just go to any gate because all gates lead to the same place. I could end up in Sacramento. I want to go to Seattle. It matters what road you take. Jesus said, I am the way. And you know, this isn't just a a, a secular thought. Well, yeah, that's what people in the world are saying. No, I'm actually starting to hear it in churches. Be aware. Now, I love the church. 
So I'm not coming to bash other churches, but we have got to stand on the truth. And Jesus said, I am the truth. I was in a meeting a couple months ago where a pastor was asked. He said, is there such a thing as absolute truth? That's what this interviewer asked this pastor. And the pastor looks and goes, no. This is a Christian pastor. This isn't a new phenomenon. This has been going on for centuries. I want to take you into a story where the very essence of truth is being questioned. It's a dialogue that was going on between Jesus, our Lord, and Pontius Pilate, the highest ruler of Israel in that day. If you turn with me now four chapters over to John chapter 18. Here's the scenario. The Jewish leaders, like we talked about, have turned Jesus over to the authorities. The Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, had no authority to execute them. They wanted him dead. So they had to come in cahoots with the Roman authorities. So now Jesus is standing in front of the most powerful Roman leader of the time who is the one person with authority to have him executed. And this is the dialogue they have, starting in verse 33. It says this, Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Verse 34, is that your idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus is talking about the reality of heaven. We'll be addressing that in the upcoming weeks. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Say truth. truth. To testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Verse 38. What is truth? Said Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for charge against him. But, But it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. We know from other books of the Bible that Barabbas was a murderer. you got to move on to the next chapter, the first verse. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Okay, what is a flogging? You've got to grasp this for a second. Flogging is where they took a whip that had nine different extensions from it. At the end of those extensions were tied in pieces of glass, pieces of lead, bone, so that when it was lashed upon the back, it would actually rip the skin from the muscles and bones and cause a person to bleed profusely 
almost to the point of death. Flogging with 39 lashes, 40 minus 1, because when 40 lashes were exerted upon a human body, it inevitably killed them. Jesus experienced 40 minus 1. Now here's the interesting scenario here. We know what Pilate felt. We know what Pilate thought. You know, first of all, Jesus is saying, I came to testify of the truth. And anyone who's on the side of truth is with me. Let me just ask you, do you believe that today? Do you believe that only with Jesus is truth? Because statistically speaking, in a room this size, that wouldn't be the case. The last survey done in America in March of 2014, only 53% of people believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And I talk to Christians continuously that aren't convinced of that. But Jesus said, anyone who's on the side of truth is with me. Pilate on the other side, it's a, a perfect juxtaposition between the authority of the word of God and the humanistic mentality. Pilate says, what is truth? He's basically saying, truth's unknowable. Truth's what you make of it. Truth's what you think. But then Pilate's going to tell us what he thinks. He goes out after Jesus has given his defense, and, and, and he goes out to the Jewish leaders and goes, hey, I, I just judged him. I find no basis to charge him. That's what he felt. That's what he thought. Then look at that next word. It says then, but. Pilate then says, but. He goes, I find no reason to charge him, but. But. There's many buts out there, people. Some of you guys are like, I, I think I get that. Uh, what, what's Pilate saying? He's saying, I feel this. But, you know, what's, what's the popular thought? What's the crowd think? And then he says, hey, let me just throw it at the crowd and whatever you guys decide. So, hey, so here's two options. Let's just throw this up to popular thought. Uh, do you want Jesus, who I don't think anything's wrong with, the king of the Jews, or do you want Barabbas, a murderer, who just led an uprising? And they say, give us the murderer. So then what does Pilate do? He doesn't stand up and say, no, I found no basis for charge against him. He goes, okay, well, I actually send him to get flogged. This is still happening today. I, I, I was watching a while back a debate between two of our highest elected officials or running for that office. And the interviewer, the facilitator of the debate did something very interesting. And some of you might have watched this. He, he looked at this man and said, according to your religion, do you believe that life begins at conception? And he goes, yes, as a Catholic, I believe life begins at conception. A baby is alive in the womb. And then the interviewer looked at him and then said, so should it be legal to end that life? Caught him. And he goes, 
well, I don't think I have the right to say that. That's not my decision to make. And I am thinking, you are an elected leader. Your responsibility is to defend the rights of every living being in this country. And you've just agreed that there's a living being, but all of a sudden you're saying, but that's not my decision. Do you see the error in that? Let's just go with the popular thought on this. Men and women, that is why in the last 50 years we have flip-flopped on what we believe about morality in our country. Our country was founded on biblical beliefs. If you don't think that, then you haven't traveled to other countries. Because as I travel through the world, I see where the poor are disregarded and let people are starving to death and no one even looks at them because they say, that's the reincarnation you deserve, but we will revere this cow. Well, praise God that's not happening in the United States. However, we are moving away from our biblical moorings. And what happens? When we do that, we step out of the covering of God. And he will no longer protect us when we oppose his word and we oppose his truth to go with popular thought. So we have flip-flopped in the last 50 years on the legalization of pornography. We, we've, we've flip-flopped on protecting unborn children in the womb. We flip-flopped on sexuality outside of marriage. We flip-flopped on what we believe about homosexual relationships. We flip-flopped on drug use. It's not about what I feel. It's about what Scripture says. And listen to me. I know we're getting fired up and... What I don't want us to get fired up and then go out on some crusade with our Bible slapping people in the face. That's not the point. We're not rising up to judge. We're not, Jesus said, let him who is without sin pick up and throw the first stone. Jesus looked at the woman caught in adultery. And he says, neither do I condemn you. But then he said something so important. Go and leave your life of sin. As a church, we need to become all the more loving, all the more accepting, all the more compassionate on all those topics I just brought up. Not self-righteous, condemning, prideful, and haughty. No, we need to be low, down in the dirt, saying, we're with you, we're behind you. We're just sinners saved by grace coming alongside. But... We believe in an authoritative word of God, and we're setting our standards on that and headed towards that by the grace of God. Because most people are determining what they believe by their feelings. I, I think a lot of you are familiar with what happened to JFK Jr. in 1999. He's flying a single-engine prop plane, and they did all kinds of studies because of his prominence to understand what happened. And he experienced in a, in, a, in a storm a disequilibrium in having vertigo. And so it's pretty common among pilots. All of a sudden their feelings are telling them one thing. So he thinks as he's strapped into the seat and flying his plane over the ocean next to Martha's Vineyard, 
that he's flying totally parallel to the earth, all the while his instruments are indicating, no, you're heading straight down and you're redlining on your velocity. And what happened? He crashes into those waters, never to be seen again. Why? Because he listened to his feelings instead of acknowledging the truth of what the instrument said. Do you live by what feels right to you? Do you live based on what feels right to our popular society? Even what feels right to other Christians? Are you reading the instrument panel? Are you looking at the truth of God's word? I remember, this is embarrassing to say as a pastor, but I remember when I came into the church that my life would be transformed by in college. I grew up in church. And so when I got to this church, I sat on the back row. I, I had seen that people were on fire, but, but to be quite honest with you, I was questioning a lot of things. I sat on the back row, and these people were doing the weirdest things. They were closing their eyes during worship. <laughs> and in my church growing up, you did not close your eyes. If you did, you got pinched by your mother. Because that meant you were falling asleep. But these guys would be worshiping, and then they'd have these serene faces and just. And I thought, they are losing it. Those are some fanatics, those eye closers. They didn't stop at eye closing. They even opened their hands. Some of them extended their hands towards heaven. Oh, that made me so uncomfortable. I'm serious. I was like, that is wrong. And I said, now, if you're going to raise your hands, then raise them this way to receive from God. But this way pushes him back. <laughs> now, I had grown up in church. Where did I get that? I have no idea. It was a feeling I had. Guys, some of them, few of the, the radical ones, they came to the front, and they'd actually do this. Like, oh, no, you don't dance in church, right? It's the bunny hop from the skating rink. You know, you, you, you can jump in a football game, but not church. So I remember I was dating this Southern Belle, and she was like, Robert, what's going on? And I said, I don't know, but we're, I said, we're going to get to the bottom of this. And I, I, I remember I went home, and I talked to my dad, and he said, well, how that new church you visited? go. And I was like, Dad, I'm never going back there. They closed their eyes. They raised their hands. Some of them were even dancing. And my dad, traditional Baptist deacon, I thought he'd be like, that's my son. Way to be rational. Run for the hills, son. <laughs> my dad said this. He goes, you know, Robert, interesting. I was reading the Bible this morning. It's a good place to start. I was reading the Bible this morning. And he goes, and I read about King David. You know, King David wrote most of the Psalms in the middle of the Bible. And he said, it says of David that he actually danced with all his might before the Lord. He said, you know, if it was okay for David and it's in the Bible, I don't think you should discount this church because they're actually doing biblical things. Dad? He said, I think you should go back. I went back. 
I went back. And it was like I was placing my heart, my cold stone heart, in front of a furnace of his love. And he just melted it. And he melted my pride. And before I knew it, my hands started moving up. <laughs> I mean, they started, you know, you've been there with me. Some of you, this is like your first time in Expressive Church. So the first day, you're like hoping that no one's looking at you and you're like, You know, and then, and then you get a little bolder. You're like. <laughs> and then one day you're like, I'm going to go for it. You're like. <laughs> and I remember finally, finally one day I was like, okay, I don't care. I'm sure someone's going to have a camera. It's going to be on the front page of the paper. But then I put my hands up. And I felt so free. Because I didn't care anymore what people thought about me. I just wanted to raise holy hands to the Lord. And, and if you're uncomfortable doing that, don't worry. The goal is not for everyone to look like we just scored a touchdown. That's not the goal. <laughs> I remember the first time I was dancing, I'm like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I was like, yeah! I did, I did it! <laughs> but, but here's the point. I'm so glad that my father led me to the truth of the word instead of letting me take my own journey based on my deceptive feelings. Because what I felt was wrong and the word was right. Because what I felt was wrong and the word was right. Do you base your life on your feelings or on the authority of the word of God? Now, some of you are still questioning the authority of the word of God. Perhaps you're thinking, well, you know, the Bible's good, but there are also other good texts. There's, there's super texts throughout antiquity. There's other religious texts. This is just one of many. I, I, I want to just give you some ammunition for your own understanding and also for your own proof today of the authenticity of Scripture. Four different tests that scholars hold up texts to to validate the true reality of a text. Here, here they are. Let's just go through them real quick. Now, you just need to put your scholar hat on for a moment. You need to put your glasses in, sharpen your pencils. Here we go. Number one, the continuity of the message test. One of the things that attorneys, one of the things that different journalists do to establish the validity of a testimony is they say, can this testimony be validated by many witnesses? So many of the texts that people believe are written by one person, but the more eyewitnesses we have and the more their stories line up, the more we give credence to the message. Listen, the Bible is not written by one person at what time? As most of the other books of antiquity are. The Bible is written in 66 different books, which all speak the same message, written over 1,500 years by over 40 different authors. The continuity of this text is sound. Number two test, this is a very important one. In the discipline of textual criticism, we have the preservation of the text test, the preservation of the text test. There are two questions that textual critics ask in this discipline. The number one is this. From the time of its original pinning, how 
long is the duration of time since, uh, until we have the first copies. So let's put a chart up for a moment. Let's look at, at several of the most noted works of literature in history. We have Plato, Tacitus, Aristotle, Homer's Iliad, and the New Testament. Now, if you look at the first column, the date written Plato, known by quite a few people. Some of you are thinking, oh, I just thought it was that little putty we played with. <laughs> date written between 61 and 113 AD. When do we have the earliest copy? The earliest copy is from 900 AD. But I don't hear a lot of people saying, oh, that's not an actual authentic work. Let's move down to Homer's Iliad. Most of you read some of that in school. 900 BC, the first copy of that that we have in our hands today is from 400 BC. That's a 500-year time discrepancy. Now look at the New Testament. The New Testament was completed between 50 and 100 AD. Most, most uh, scholars say 100 AD. And the first copy we have is from 30 years later. There's no text that has such a small time discrepancy. But move on to the number of copies. The number of copies. There are seven copies of Plato's work in museums today. There, there's 643 of Homer's Iliad. But towering far above any text from antiquity is the New Testament with 5,600 copies. I, I want you to know that when you say the Bible is truth, it's not just a faith statement, but it's authenticated by the discipline of textual criticism. But now let, let, let's move on past this because here's, here's another great test to hold up a text to, and it's the archaeological text test. We have innumerable archaeological finds that authenticate the message of the Bible. I mean, so many of the cities mentioned in the Bible, such as Jericho, they've been found. You can read about them. So many discoveries, but specifically about Jesus, listen to this, they have the ossuary of Caiaphas, uh, the inscription that Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, his bones are in this sepulcher. We, we have an inscription about Pontius Pilate that you can go and see, authenticating the people of his day. We, we, we have the inscription of David's house from the Old Testament. You say, well, that's the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? I mean, we have findings that authenticate so many of these stories. Here's my favorite ones, the Dead Sea Scrolls, found in 1947 by these Bedouin shepherds. This wasn't some archaeologist that, you know, went out and like, well, maybe they were lying. No, these, these shepherds that just stumble, and there's a little shepherd boy throwing rocks into a cave. Here's something clank. They go in, pull out these huge vases, 800 manuscripts, a thousand years earlier than anything they had ever found, with either portions or the entirety of every book in the Old Testament, except the book of Esther. But VeggieTales made a great Esther movie, so it's covered. <laughs> we have more archaeological proof of the Bible than any book in antiquity. 
And, and listen to this. I, I could go on and on from, from, from astronomy to uh, paleontology. I mean, we could go through all these different disciplines, but the last one I want to go to is this, the, the accurate prophecy test. Because if you know anything about the Bible, you know that there's tons of predictions about the future in the Bible. 2,500 prophecies, to be exact, about the nation of Israel, about the coming Messiah. Do you know that 2,000 prophecies in Scripture have already been fulfilled perfectly? I mean, things like this, things that said the Messiah would be born of a virgin. The Messiah would come out of Egypt. The Messiah would have a healing ministry. The, 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 the Messiah would be given wine vinegar to drink, that his clothes would be gambled for, things that could never, one, one person could never make those things happen. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. You can't determine where you're born. Right? The, the last 500 will be in the coming age that maybe you or your kids or your grandkids will get to watch unfold with their very own eyes. 2,000 fulfilled prophecies. The chances of that happening, happening are 10 to the 2,000th power. In plain terms, that's awesome. <laughs> it's impossible barring a supernatural occurrence. When you stand upon this word, when you choose this word, it's not just blind faith. It's truth that's been verified time and time again by the disciplines of even our day and age. But so many people are basing what they believe on their feelings. And this is why I'm going to such lengths this morning to substantiate the authenticity, the validity, and the accuracy of Scripture is because this is what I know. Many of you today are going to make decisions in this next few months based on what you feel. Statistically speaking, some of you will end your marriage because what you feel, not based on the truth. Some of you will commit adultery based on what you feel instead of the truth of the word. Some of you that might not be married will walk into sexual immorality based on what you feel and justifying that it's right because you're not standing on the word of God. And some of you will say, Jesus isn't the only way. Because how could that be right? Because it doesn't feel right to me. And just to answer that question, the Bible says, that God's will is that no one would perish, but that everyone would come to an understanding of the truth. It matters what you believe. Let me just end with this. In 1933, Adolf Hitler became the chancellor of Germany, the leader of the Third Reich. He was consolidating all his power and began taking over Europe. There were two leaders of England, which was leading the free world at the time. Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain saw what Hitler was doing, but he refused to believe the truth. 
that Hitler was a tyrannical leader, obliterating thousands, bent on the annihilation of the whole Jewish race. And though Hitler broke pact after pact, treaty after treaty, though he was killing thousands upon ten thousands in cold blood, Neville Chamberlain would refuse to acknowledge the truth. And if you study history, you can even watch on film one of the most embarrassing speeches where he lands after meeting with Adolf Hitler after he has invaded yet another country. He has gone and asked Hitler to sign yet another meaningless peace pact. He comes home, he stands up with papers in his hand and proudly says, I've obtained peace for our time. Listen to the speech that he gives to his people. He comes back into England, he says this, I believe it is peace for our time. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Go home and get a nice, quiet sleep. Now this isn't far from what many Christians are espousing and believing today. You know, everything's going to be okay. Refusing to look at reality. Hey, it's just going to be peaceful. Go home and go to sleep. I want to tell you that much of the church is asleep. And there was another leader. Another leader who looked reality in the eyes. Who faced the facts who stood for truth. His name was Winston Churchill, and this is what he said in his famous speech. He says, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many months of struggle and suffering. What he was saying was not popular. You ask, what is our policy? And I say, it's to wage war by land, sea, and air. War with all our might, with all our strength that God has given us. And to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalog of human crime. This is our policy. And you ask, what's our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terrors. Victory, however long and hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. It's time for the people of God to rise up with that same spirit that Winston Churchill said. And said, we'll face the facts that we're in a dark time. That we're in a lamentable time. That the journey might be long and hard, but if we believe this word, then victory will be ours. And my question for you my question for us as a church family is we will, will we continue to live by what is popular? Will we continue to live by our feelings? Or will we choose to stand on the authentic word of God and to hold it as a standard for our generation? Don't we stand up? Steven's strumming that guitar powerfully at this moment. Whatever you have with you, if it's your phone that you read the Bible on, whether it's a Bible, will you just hold it in the air right now? If you don't have that, you can just hold up your hand. But I just want us to commit today as a church 
that we will stand upon the word of God. Father, here we are, your children, and we say we need you, and our nation needs you, and the nations of the world need you, and we commit as your people to not follow our fledgling feelings, but to stand and to fight in accordance with your word. Let your word transform us. Let your word be our God, and let your word be our hope in this hour. We ask in Jesus' name. And would you just close your eyes? If you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never accepted the truth, if you've never acknowledged that Jesus is the only way, I just want you to pray with me right now. You can ask him to come into your heart. He died on the cross to forgive your sins. He rose from the dead, defeating the power of sin and death. If you're not 100% sure of the truth that you're going to heaven when you die, if you're not 100% sure that he's living in your heart as your Lord and Savior, just pray this with me right now. Say, Jesus. I need you. Forgive me of my sins. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for rising from the dead. I give you my life. And now fill me with your Holy Spirit. If you're praying that prayer today, the Bible says you're being born again. And I just want to pray over you. So if that's you today, just with every eye closed, would you just raise your hand up right now so I can pray over you? Just all over this place. Just wave at me if you're giving your life to Jesus. Awesome. Who else? I'm seeing hands all over the place. Who else? Just look up at me real quick. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Who else? Thank you. Thank you. Who else? Awesome. Let's give a hand to these ones that are giving their life to Jesus today. Prayer team, come forward right now. We want to pray for you. If that's you, you're saying, today I'm committing my life to Jesus. We want to pray for you. We want to put something in your hands. If today you're also saying, hey, I just need someone to pray for me. I've been struggling. I've been struggling with belief. I've been struggling with a hardship. We want to pray for you as well. And also the truth of God's word says that he heals our diseases and sicknesses. This might be a day for a miracle in your physical body or your situation in life. We want to pray for you as well. We're going to sing one last song to finish our time. And you come as you need prayer right now. If you've given your life to Jesus, if you need healing in your body, or just someone to agree with you in prayer for anything, you just come now as we sing this last song. Be bold, come now, get help from the Lord and his people as we finish our service.